Wall Street is full of corruption and it is baked in to every aspect of our society. MMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding at the macro level. In the 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This was written over a hundred years ago. This is The Rogue Scholar with Steve Grumbine. All right, everybody, it is Steve, the rogue scholar. And today, my uh, blood pressure couldn't take any more of the back and forth with people that are so positive they understand what's going on in Ukraine and Russia and NATO and EU and so forth. But most people don't even know who their damn local representative is. You know what I mean? Most people don't understand the community that they live in. And I find it a bit of a stretch to believe that the rank and file person <clears throat> is supposed to be an expert in geopolitical conversations about something like Ukraine and Russia, which is incredibly rich in the story. I mean, we, we've got a lot of moving factors. I had to dig in. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stand not being in the know. And, you know, my know is probably as incomplete and bastardized as everyone else's. And the difference will be that I'm telling you flat out, I'm trying to learn this because, hey, my, my area is understanding economics. I started digging deeper and I realized, in fact, so much of this Ukraine story is really rooted in economics. And we can see some historical patterns of things that have occurred, like in Ukraine, looking back at Weimar, Germany, where the economy was absolutely destroyed. And you had neo-Nazi at the time, I guess it would be Nazi, not neo-Nazi, right? Nazis uh, telling the people, hey guys, we have you know the answers. We can fix the problems that are there for you, right? And, and I looked at Ukraine and there's so much to, and I've got some good links and we're gonna go through them together. I'm not here teaching you something as like some expert. I'm teaching you this in terms of, I did my homework here. And I want to share with you what I've learned, okay? To be crystal clear, for all those people out there that don't even have a high school diploma but suddenly feel like they are an expert on all things geopolitical, hats off to you. For me, I've done a lot of work, and it's still a challenge, okay? So what I did was I yesterday, Sunday, um, at I guess it was 10 a.m. Eastern time, I interviewed a Ukrainian economist, an MMT economist, and we talked and I learned some things. A lot of the things I learned from him yesterday were things that you'll get to hear next Saturday or this coming Saturday on the Macro and Cheese podcast. I'm not here duplicating that, trust me. What he talked about was very, very um, important, informative, and hopefully you'll check it out because it's worth your time. But what we're going to talk about here is just some spinoffs from some things I pulled from that, plus my own understanding based on understanding the IMF, the EU the neoliberal project, and the way U.S. interests are oftentimes carved out globally based on creating markets and the strain there within. But I started digging, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show my screen here real quick, and uh, I'm going to walk with you through some of these different um, stories. 
And and one of the big things I thought was worth talking about before we jump in too deeply is the fact that Ukraine has been considered, you'll love this term, the breadbasket of Europe. It accounts for 12% of global wheat exports. Think about this for a minute. 12% of all wheat exports and 16% of corn and 18% of barley. What do you think about that? This is a huge amount of food. And they're talking about there could be global, get this, could spark dangerous times for food prices and food security. So uh, let's go through this article a little bit here. Producers in Europe fear the Ukraine crisis may result in rising prices of items such as bread, baked goods, and beer that may be passed on to end consumers. I, folks, beer, oh, wow, right? But corn and wheat, all these other things are baked into so many other things. So if they are a part of, they're a piece of some production somewhere else. And think about how many things corn goes in. Corn, there's even oil, different kinds of fuel created with corn, right? So anyway, bottom line is that corn is in, and, and wheat and so forth are, are staples in many, many uh, countries' diets. And as the one of the lead exporters of this, it, it's very important to understand that there is a lot at stake here just from a food perspective. There's a lot of countries that don't produce their own food, that this kind of food, these kinds of um, agricultural outputs um, help fuel their country. Because one of the most important things to understand about, uh, especially as you understand MMT, is understanding that there are varying levels. There's a spectrum of sovereignty. Many countries do not have food sovereignty. They, they are highly dependent on imports from other countries to be able to make their country work out. And if those, the costs of those imports payable in a foreign currency go up, it can create all kinds of untold problems in that country. But anyway, let's go in here. Wheat, corn, and edible oil prices are all expected to rise. Russia and Ukraine together make up nearly a third of the global wheat exports, 19% of exported corn and 80% exports of sunflower oil, the world's third most traded vegetable oil. According to Professor Chris Elliott, Director of Institute of Global Food Safety, Ukraine is the world's leading exporter of sunflower oil and also ranks first place in Europe in terms of arable land area, able to meet the food needs of 600 million people. What's more is the country ranks in second place in the world in barley production and in fourth place in barley exports, is the world's lar third largest producer and fourth largest corn exporter the fourth biggest potato producer and the fifth largest rye producer on the globe. And so, hey, I wonder why, you know, with Ukraine supplying so much of uh, Russia's food supply, why this might be an issue, okay? But I started digging even deeper, and I want to get back to this because ultimately the story gets even better. So we're going to go up here and we're going to look at Ukraine's vast natural resources might be a reason behind the invasion. Well, obviously, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that could be creating the seeds for the invasion. But let's take a look at this article real quick. So Ukraine has become a seedbed of conflict between Russia and the West. The country's geostrategic position has rendered it susceptible to the ongoing larger conflict between Russia and the West as a buffer 
for the two conflicting blocks, Ukraine has had a very difficult choice to make in the last decade. Now, there's a lot more to this than that, but I'm going to go into some of this. Russia's contention with the West. Russia is opposed to NATO. Well, NATO has been a big piece of shit to begin with, but the North Atlantic Treaty Organization within its backyard promise had been made. Promises not to expand NATO had been made to Russia. Well, clearly that's not the case. I mean, they have been trying to expand NATO like crazy. But the thing is, Ukraine's current government not only wants to join NATO, but they want to really secure their ties with Europe at the expense of Russia. So they, they're they not thinking necessarily about the expense of Russia. They're thinking, hey, I we want to be a part of this. They want to be part of the European Union. Now, I can't think of anything more antagonistic to a country like Russia that's, that serves as their their bulkhead or their blocker, the buffer zone between Europe and themselves. And that's always been Russia's kind of MO is to expand uh, out their horizons. And that has always led to the ability to defeat incoming uh, warring nations. I mean, going back to World War II and before even, you know, World War I, Russia has always had that big buffer zone there that any uh, invading country is going to have to get through. Well, warfare has obviously changed a lot since the days of horse-drawn cannons and so forth. But that has been a huge tactical advantage for Russia because they have this huge kind of buffer zone around their key uh, cities and so forth. And Ukraine definitely serves that. But one of the other things, and this is a really big deal, that as much as the struggle is military, it is well strategic, and that's not where the story ends. Ukraine's economy resources and the clash to lay claims to the country's bountiful rare earth elements are also the motives to influence its political leanings. Russia or Europe, pledge allegiance to Russia as an erstwhile Soviet state or open up to the West. Tough choice for Ukraine. Well, it's not necessarily a tough choice. We're going to get into that. But here's some of the cool things if you want to know about Ukraine. Ukraine's lithium reserve among the largest in Europe. Second globally in gallium extraction, fifth globally in germanium extraction, sixth globally in titanium extraction, seventh globally in iron extraction, eighth globally in magnesium extraction, seven licensed fields and blocks for titanium, three fields and blocks for lithium, three licensed fields and blocks for rare earth elements. Okay. Now, if you think about this, this fuels smartphone and all the high-tech stuff with semiconductors, you name it. Kind of a big deal, right? So let's keep scrolling for just a second. Oil and gas. Ukraine has the second biggest known gas reserves in Europe, apart from Russia gas reserves in Asia, although largely unexploited. In terms of natural gas, the country has around 1.9 trillion cubic meters, which is an incredible amount. Picture this. It's sufficient to be stretched around the earth several times. This is second only to Norway's known resources of 1.53 trillion cubic meters. However, ironically enough, wait, this is it. Ukraine depends on gas imports, and it is primarily because the USSR began extracting gas on a large scale in Siberia in the 70s. Anyway, so you get the point here, right? The, the bottom line is there's a lot of real resources here that are causing this. And the fact is that Russia has a need for it, and so does the West. So now who's going to get this, right? Well, unfortunately, one of the most important things was this pipeline that Russia was trying to run through Ukraine. And Ukraine said, no, thank you. We're not interested. And so Russia said, okay, fine. We're going to build the pipeline around you. 
we're going to build a pipeline around you. So uh, ultimately, the, the fact is, is that in 2019, Russia and Ukraine inked a transit agreement that allows easy transfer of Siberian gas to the EU through Ukraine's huge gas transportation system, regardless of unilateral sanctions by the U.S. In order to feed the energy-hungry Europe, Russia set up the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline to transport national gas, natural gas, which would be cost-effective, reliable, and sustainable. This also implies that the U.S. is nowhere near the gas race. However, Gazprom's Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which goes through the Baltic Sea, might have hit a major roadblock with the Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Gazprom is Russia's largest company and, as of 2019, was the world's largest publicly owned natural gas firm. Now, folks, you, you, you get the point. This is all we're talking about natural resources once again. Natural resources, precious metals, lithium, on and on and on, like I've already said, right? So if I come back here, food security, Russian invasion of Ukraine means the former will reign in the exports, which will create food security issues as Ukraine is one of the largest distributors of wheat and corn. Grain exports are the mainstay of Ukraine's economy. So if we think about it like that, right, ultimately, Ukraine has got a lot of untapped resources. They are kind of like a developing country in many ways. And if you look at the global south, you could kind of look at Ukraine very similarly. And what does the global south have in common with Ukraine? The global south has the IMF. And what is the IMF famous for doing? The IMF, in order to get into bed with the IMF, you've got to agree to certain structural adjustments. Structural adjustments that rarely work out for the overall country and always work out for building markets, privatization, eliminating the public space, and also allowing the fat cats to get fat, all right? So when the fat cats get fat and the people suffer, it starts feeling an awful lot like Weimar Germany once again in many, many ways, right? But this is the story of so many countries around the globe. Ukraine is not very different in any way, shape, or form, except for the fact that it's balanced between Europe and Asia right there at the border of uh, Russia. And so with this, this is the geopolitical space here. And Ukraine used to be part of the Soviet empire. I mean, really, it was part of one of the Soviet states. And when Soviet Union collapsed and so forth, there was a lot of things that went on during that time. And one of the big things that you have to consider is that Russia, before the Soviet Union fell, had no real understanding of private property because they didn't have private property. They were a communist nation and they really had public ownership of means of production, you name it. Now, there's a lot we can talk about there. I'm not going to get into it. We don't have time. But the fact of the matter is, is that Russia didn't have, you know, private property. All of a sudden, the collapse of the Soviet Empire, and what happens? Bammo. Now, all of a sudden, private property, capitalism, markets, you name it, okay? Well, these little Soviet bloc groups that came off the the uh, Ukraine, uh, you, you re, uh, what is the Crimea, et cetera, all these little teeny pockets of former Soviet territories we're making decisions back and forth. Well, Ukraine and Russia have had a very tense relationship for a very, very long time. It's not some five-minute deal here, folks. In fact, history of Ukraine revolutions and stuff like that show that they've been having internal conflict now for about 30 years as well, for probably longer. But we know for a fact during the neoliberal era that Ukraine has really struggled and suffered. So one of the next ones that I want to show you is this next article. 
which is <laughs> statement by the IMF leadership. And what we're going to do is we're going to bring that up for a moment. And here we go. So if we look at the statement by the IMF, you're going to love this because it's going to all start coming together for you in a minute. Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva on Ukraine. And this is just on the 25th. Ms. Kristalina Georgieva, Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund, today made the following statement on Ukraine. This week's events in Ukraine are a matter of grave concern, first and foremost, due to the human toil at toll and suffering of ordinary people. The conflict is also having serious economic impact, which will worsen the longer it continues. This crisis comes at a delicate time. Of course, it's delicate. When the global economy is recovering from the ravages of COVID-19 pandemic and threatens to undo some of that progress. Today, I met with our executive board to brief executive directors our initial assessment of the unfolding situation. I assured them that our staff will continue to work closely with the authorities to support Ukraine in every way we can. <laughs> when the IMF says they're going to support you in every way we can, look out. So we will also continue to work hand in hand with the World Bank Group and other partners to coordinate our support and ensure the maximum benefit for Ukraine. <laughs> the fund has a number of instruments in its toolkit. And as the situation in Ukraine evolves, we will continue to discuss with the authorities how we can best assist them. These discussions are being conducted remotely with staff participating from Washington. In addition to ongoing policy advice, we're exploring all options for further financial support, including under the existing standby arrangement, folks, standby arrangement, wait for this, for an outstanding amount of $2.2 billion U.S. dollars. The authority may have also requested IMF emergency financing. Beyond Ukraine, the repercussions of the conflict pose significant economic risks in the region and around the world. We are assessing the potential implications, including for the functioning of the financial system, because that's what matters, commodity markets, but of course, and the direct impact on countries with economic ties to the region. We stand ready to support our members as needed in close coordination with our international partners. Folks, the IMF is coming and they are here to help. They're running. They're on their way to help. The IMF is ready to help. Okay. Now, this is funny to me, obviously, because I didn't know how bad. I mean, obviously, many of us have read, you know, Confessions of an Economic Hitman and some other more credible sources like ja uh, Jason Hickel's book, uh, The Divide. You can see clearly what the IMF's endgame is, where they literally go in, they strip away all public space, all public uh, uh, support for the people, and they go ahead and privatize it because that's the U.S. model of neoliberalism. And it, it, chief export of the U.S. government is neoliberalism through these uh, you know, not NGOs like the World Bank and the IMF, and they export neoliberalism and literally wreck economies through these structural adjustments. And guess what? Ukraine is no different, no different at all, unfortunately. So let's go ahead and take a look at this here. Said the standby agreement. Let's look at what the standby agreement says. Standby agreement, though, mind you, this standby agreement is going back to November 22nd, 2021. I'm going to be crystal clear, 2021. 
It's not that long ago, is it? That's only a few months ago, right? The executive board of the International Monetary Fund completed today the first review of Ukraine's economic performance under the 18-month standby arrangement. That was approved on June 9, 2020. The completion of the review allows the authorities to draw the equivalent of about $699 million, or uh, SDR $500 million, bringing total disbursements under the current SBA to about $2.8 billion in U.S. debt. U.S. debt, folks. I want you to think about this, okay? U.S. debt. U.S. dollar-denominated debt. So the board also approved an extension of the standby arrangement to end June 2022 and a rephrasing of program disbursements as well as Ukrainian authorities' request for a waiver for non-observance of the December 2020 performance criterion on government-guaranteed debt in light of the collective actions taken. Ukraine IMF-supported economic programs aim to help the authorities address the effects of the COVID-19 shock, sustain the economic recovery, and move ahead, here we go, on important structural reforms to reduce key vulnerabilities, like privatization, right? Don't say it in any other way. We're talking about important structural reforms to reduce key vulnerabilities, okay? I want you guys to understand how important it is to understand the model that the IMF deploys as they go out to extend a helping hand to countries that are developing, burdening them with private debt and then private debt payments and then structural reforms that rip the country apart and basically turn it into bane capital of, of, of a country, okay? So in particular, under the agreed po uh, policy priorities, the Ukrainian authorities are committed to, one, returning fiscal policies to setting consistent with medium-term debt sustainability. Guess what that's called? It's called fucking austerity, motherfucker. Debt sustainability while protecting the socially vulnerable. What, are they going to throw out a couple welfare kiblets, you know, kib kibbles all over the ground? That's, that's all that is, the socially vulnerable. Strengthening revenue administration, revenue. You know, when you understand that a country creates its own currency and could do these things, it doesn't need that. Why does it need that? Well, Ukraine doesn't have all the manufacturing capability to really produce some of the stuff that would make it a powerhouse to leverage all those real resources. So the IMF is there before they get a chance to get ramped up, just like they did in Africa, just like they do in South, Af uh, South America. You name it. This is the standard plan, folks. The standard fucking plan. Okay? So, anyway, let's get back to the article here. Return to fiscal policies to setting consistent with medium-term debt sustainability while protecting the socially vulnerable, strengthening revenue administration, and reducing financial risks from quasi-fiscal operations, including in the energy sector. Oh, the finance bros, right? Safeguarding central bank independence and focusing monetary policy on returning inflation to its target. Folks, their idea of returning inflation to its target it's jacking up interest rates. What does jacking up interest rates do? It is a big old fat check to the oligarchs. That's what that is. It fattens the rich. That's what that is. So they're talking about using interest rate policies to go ahead and stave off any uh, undesired inflation. 
ensuring banks' financial health, including through good governance, with the goal of reviving sound bank lending to the private sector. Now, I will tell you, there's something to be said for sound bank lending. In other words, having real honest-to-God criteria that you follow so that you don't end up having asset bubbles and tons and tons of bad debt issue that can never be paid back, right? Ensuring banks' financial health, including through good governance with the goal of reviving sound bank lending to the private sector. Tackling corruption and pushing forward with the implementation of judicial reform. Well, look, corruption's everywhere. We need to do something about that in the United States. The IMF, their version of what ending corruption is, means that they are literally there to enforce private ownership, private sector ownership. They want to ensure that the properties, the private property, et cetera, and businesses have this freedom because all these external actors are coming into work with this you know, liberalization of markets, and they want to know that their assets will not be fucked with. So that's what that's all about. Okay, so reducing the role of the, oh boy, listen to number five, folks, reducing the role of the state invested interest in the economy to approve, improve the business environment, attract investment, and raise the economy's potential. Jesus Christ, do you guys get this? I, look, I'm going to come back here and I'm going to go right back to it. Folks, I mean, I'm telling you right now, that right there is the winner. Number five of their standby agreement is to make absolutely sure, to make absolutely sure that they are literally getting the government out of public policy and putting it into the hands of private business to get them out of public spending, to get them out of public services and give it to private spending. Folks, private markets, once again, markets, 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 IMF is all the fuck over this, okay? All the fuck over this. So let's get back to this real quick. So if we go back in here and we look at the rest of this, Ukrainian authorities, okay, program was successful in augmenting fiscal space in 2020 and providing a liquidity backstop to boosting reserves. This allowed the authorities to deploy a strong policy response and cushioned and the economic and social impacts of COVID-19 pandemic while preserving macroeconomic and financial stability. So folks, I'm going to cut with this article for now, and I'm just going to tell you flat out, the IMF is an extension of the United States, clearly an extension of the United States, but it's also an extension of the larger West. You know, you're looking at Europe, you're looking at England, you're looking at that whole world over there, okay? The World Bank, the World Trade Organization, all these groups are predators. They, 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 they have that mask on that they're here to help. They're predators. They're absolutely freaking big, giant vacuum suck, sucking predators. And if you think of battlefield earth and the big giant ships extracting ore from the U.S. or from the world, you know, so that's what the IMF and the World Trade Organization are. They eliminate any kind of protections for the country and they liberalize everything and they eliminate the government's touch on it. And what you have is a free for all freedom grab, if you will, freedom grab of all the natural resources that that country has. So naturally, you've got Russia who wants access to those real resources as well and sees the Ukraine as part of them. See, you know, Vladimir Putin the other day was saying, hey, you know what? I can't imagine these are these are Russians with 
uh, how do you say, Russians with uh, an artificial barrier in there. So let's go into that real quick, because one of the big things is the U.S.-backed coup, the Maidan, okay? This right here, the, the uh, was the Revolution for Dignity or something to that effect. I'll get to that, because I told you, I'm not an expert, folks. I'm going through this with you, with you, right? So let's do that. Let's go further into this. And so right here, we've got this. This was by Bronco Marcetic and Jacobin Magazine. And some of these things were really, really powerful. And one of the things I want to just start off with right up front, okay, is in 2014, Ukraine great great power gamesmanship, righteous anger at a corrupt status quo and an opportunistic far-right extremist toppled the government in the Maidan revolution. Today's crisis in Ukraine can't be understand without understanding Maidan, okay? And obviously, this is what a lot of people are focused on right here. A lot of people are focused very much on this. And they understand there's been a lot, if you understand the way the history of Ukraine is, you understand that this is just but one of many uh, revolutions. They've had like probably five or six of them since the 90s, okay? And and right here, great groundwork for rebellion, like today's Russia-NATO tensions more broadly at the heart of Maidan protests and was was the push by some Western governments, especially the United States, to isolate Russia by supporting the integration of peripheral parts of the former Soviet Union in the European and Atlantic institutions. And Moscow's pushback against what it saw as an encroachment on its sphere of influence. In 2014, the man forced to navigate these tensions was Yanukovych, and he was taken his second crack at the Ukrainian presidency. He had been ousted after the 2004 Orange Revolution, which is just one of many revolutions you'll see here. 2010, the International Monitors had declared the most recent election free and fair, an impressive display of democracy, etc. Yanukovych's rule was marred by widespread corruption, authoritarianism, and for some, an uncomfortable friendliness with Moscow. So you can see clearly this guy was very, very close to Putin and others. Okay. Now, what, whether you like that or not, it doesn't really matter. It's the case, right? And so it, uh, Moscow, which had made no secret of its backing him in its previous election. So Moscow had put its hand on this Yanukovych uh, as well. Okay. So here he is, a tricky spot. Rely on cheap gas from Russia, but a plurality of the country, not crucially, an absolute majority still wanted European integration. They, the people wanted to be integrated into Europe. His political career was caught in the same bind with his par- party formally allied, formally, formally allied to Vladimir Putin's own United Russia Party. His pro-Russia party base wanted to see closer relations with its neighbor. The oligarchs, who were the real reason he had gotten anywhere near the presidency, were financially entangled with the West, and they feared competition to the, their grip on the country from across the Russian border. All the while, two geopolitical powers in the form of Washington and Moscow hoped to use these cleavages to draw the country into their respective orbits. Okay, so we can go through a lot of this stuff, but I want to bring this up. This right here is uh, another article from Jacobin, and it is uh, there's a let me get scroll up to the top so you can see where we are. 
Give me. Uh, this is by Volodymyr Ishenko. And he says, Ukraine crisis is extremely complex and little understood. Sociologist Volodymyr uh, Ishenko explains the crisis origins, the fictions that surround it, and why war is still far from inevitable. Okay. Now, the, obviously, he he's wrong. He ends up being wrong because if you look at the date on this, date was 210. Well, guess what? The invasion happened shortly thereafter. Or it, it, you know, it happened, period. So, um, you know, sorry, folks. When somebody leaves their country and goes into another country, we call that an invasion, whether you like that framing or not. Um, and I'm not here to say one with you. I'm just here to show you. It's like, why is, uh, I'm trying to find the spot, the thing that mattered to me. Here we go. Economically, Ukraine is actually a big failure. If you look at the economic indicators, Ukraine is probably one of the very, very few countries in the world that has not reached its 1990 level of GDP per capita. There was a huge economic decline in the 90s, and then Ukraine failed to grow like its Eastern European neighbors. We don't live better than at the end of the Soviet Union, unlike Poland, for example, or even Russia or Belarus. For Russia and for the United States, it's a place through which natural gas is transported. There were some initiatives to have three-party consortium, Russia's supplier of gas, European Union as the consumer in Ukraine as a transitory territory. These were torpedoed in the 90s and 2000s, particularly by the Ukrainian side. And the result was the Russia just built several pipelines around Ukraine. And the Nord Stream 2 is perhaps the most dangerous for Ukraine now because it may make Ukrainian pipelines obsolete, folks. Do you see this? So scrolling through here, from a military point of view, Russia says Ukraine may be important because if, it's NATO, if NATO starts to deploy offensive weapons, there are rockets that can reach Moscow in five minutes from Ukrainian territory. The Russian defensive strategy for centuries was expansion, and, and I said this earlier, centuries was expansion in order to push its borders as far west as possible, creating strategic depth, which led Napoleon Bonaparte and Adolf Hitler's invasion to fail, though contemporary wars are not waged in the same way as they were a half century or two centuries ago. The United States, Ukraine is a potential hotspot against Russia. If Ukraine is creating tensions with Russia, it might weaken Russia and may deflect its resources. For example, in the case of Chinese escalation, some people comment now quite cynically, why not let Russia invade Ukraine and let's make Ukraine another Afghanistan for Russia? Russia would spend a lot of its resources. It would be hit with sanctions. Probably Nord Stream would be under sanctions. And it's not clear for how long Russia would survive a major escalation in Ukraine. That might be a reason why this war, Donbass region, has been going on for such a long time. There's no actual interest in stopping it. There were several opportunities to do so in 19 and 15, and the U.S. government didn't do, do as much as it could. Anyway, so I'm coming back here, and hopefully you begin to understand that the economic aspects of this battle here are very, very critical to understand. There's a lot of talk about neo-Nazi this and neo-Nazi that. The fact is, is that many of those things are largely an irrelevancy because what they do is they distract from the resource extraction. And that's why we dub this the great Ukraine robbery, because ultimately Ukraine is being pulled in both directions. The U.S. wants them through the IMF, through NATO. NATO is the watchdog for the IMF, basically. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to secure access 
to the fuels under the ground because the the Western nations have better ability to refine and get to the oil that is currently untapped in the Ukraine. They want to have those markets liberalized so countries can come and do business in there. That's all they care about. They're not interested in the well-being of those people. They're interested in access to those markets, to those real resources. Russia, not so much different, to be fair. Russia has the same goal. So much of this distraction about neo-Nazis and stuff like that, while it's an important thing at some level, it's not important as it pertains to the struggle here. The struggle is 100% about resources. This is about access to markets and the neoliberal project. The neoliberal project creates such austere conditions that they create Nazis, right? In that, in that what we've learned, when economics are not there for the regular people, you see it in the United States. What happens when the economy sucks? You see rises in fascism. You see scapegoating. You see minority communities targeted or, or maybe it's immigrants targeted. Well, guess what? Same thing in the Donbass region. There's all kinds of stuff going on here, folks, that has everything to do with economics, okay? Everything to do with economics. And Ukraine now is facing what might be the toughest thing. If you look at what happened with Greece, Greece was under the IMF. Look at all the countries in South America that have deals with the devil with the IMF and the World Bank. The structural adjustments that they're required to make, the payments on the debt that they're trying to make. So on one hand over here, the IMF realizes that if Russia wins, the, the payments on their debt are, are going to be gone. And the, why does the debt payments matter? They don't, in the end, it's not really about the money, right? The, the, the money is irrelevant. It's really about the control that the debt brings. That debt enforces the ability for them to extract real resources, to force them to make austerity moves that free up that public space and give it over to private vulture capital. That's, that's a pretty shitty deal. So on one side, you got that. And on the other side, you got Russia playing the same kind of reindeer games. The only difference is, is that they aren't dealing with NATO. They got their own agenda here. So there's no real good guys here, right? You see this? There's no real good guys. You've got a country, Ukraine, where the people are suffering in extreme poverty. They have been war-torn forever, war-torn forever. And so what do you do here? If, if you're honest, you realize the people of Ukraine are the one that are really, really doing the suffering. The Game of Thrones that you've got with Russia and the West is really about resource extraction and, and strategic geopolitical positioning, okay? One could make the case that the reason why they're concerned about NATO is obviously Five minutes, they can have a bomb in Moscow. Okay, that's a very legitimate concern. Can't imagine what would happen if Russia was down there in Cuba or something like that. Huh, wonder how the U.S. might react in that case. So let's be fair. There's, there's aggression on all sides here. And there's no one with some high and lofty, pure motive. It's about markets. It's about neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is your enemy. It's beyond capitalism. It's that next stage of neoliberalism, this vast push for finance capital around the world, this vast push for privatization, this vast push for resource extraction, you know? And so as we're watching this play out, I would caution you to understand that while Ukraine has massive, massive real resources, 
they are not an advanced country. They do not have many of the important tools and techniques to do refining and to do other important next level up, you know, that, that whole production of the real resource. They can get to it. They have it, but they don't have the, the productive mechanism. So it's beyond just having real resources. It's how do you take those real resources and bring them to fruition, bring them to market, bring them to use. And in all this, you don't hear Ukraine saying, yeah, this is good for us. What you see is, is that they are trapped between two superpowers fighting over them, picking apart what they want. And it's not just the U.S. It's that entire NATO, uh, EU. Now the EU getting involved. They are saying they want to be part of the EU. Hmm. I wonder why. So as far as this goes, I, I, I began to realize something. If you want to follow these sorts of things, we always talk about following the money. We always look at where the money's going, where it's coming from, et cetera. But you've got to understand something. All of these countries, Ukraine, Russia, the U.S., they're all sovereign over their currency. And none of them will bounce a check for something, a payment to be made in their own currency. Guess what? Ukraine's debt is being put on them in a foreign currency, a currency they have to get somehow or another. In order to pay U.S. dollars back to pay their service, their debt, they need to have a way of getting U.S. dollars. And this is the IMF game here, folks. This is the IMF game. So there's probably a million other angles to this that I'm not covering. I want to be crystal clear. I'm not telling you I got all the answers. But I'm telling you right now, this is a huge part of this play here. And whether Russia tomorrow morning just says, okay, we're pulling out, we're going back home, see ya. It's not going to change this. There's going to continue to be this push. And as long as countries like Ukraine are suffering an economic absolute misery, and they've got austerity being pushed on them. And oligarchy is reigning supreme around the world, sucking the life out of that country. You're always going to be ripe for radicalization. Neo-Nazis take foothold in places where economic opportunity is lost. That's the only reason why Hitler even had a prayer in Germany. So keep your eyes open on the money story. These countries, including Ukraine, can create their own currency and they can do whatever they need to. The problem is because they are not sovereign in their production, because they're highly dependent on external sources, they are very, very vulnerable. And there, my friends, is the story I've got to tell you. I hope that you guys learned something from this. I did. You know, for me, this was challenging to go through this because. Folks, I don't really care that much typically about geopolitical stuff because it's always about the money. It's always about the real resources. Whenever you see some trope about, you know, this ethnic group, that and so forth, folks, these days, the, many of those things may very well be true, but they're usually a smokescreen for an economic story. They're usually a smokescreen for somebody trying to clear markets. They're usually a smokescreen for neoliberalism. And that's what we've been dealing with in the world now for better than, you know, 50 years, 60 years. And you can go back to World War II. So anyway, with that, remember this Saturday, I will be having uh, Alexander um, Val 
let me see if I can say it. Alexander Valcheshin, Valcheshin, Alexander Valcheshin, who is a uh, PhD, uh, uh, you know, finishing up his PhD at UMKC. Uh, he's got family in Ukraine, and he is going to be my guest this Saturday on the Macron Cheese podcast. It's, it's recorded. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to give you some other angles that I didn't touch on here because I didn't want to spoil the podcast. It's really fucking good. So check it out. But with that, I'm Steve Grumbine with the Rogue Scholar. And uh, you know what? I'm out of here. Have a great one, everybody. The Rogue Scholar is a production of Real Progressives. If you would like to support our work, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives. Progressives.